This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Can you identify that bird call? We'll be talking more about that bird in just a moment. I think we have a dynamite show for you today. On today's show, we'll be talking about the pileated woodpecker and its natural history. We'll also be talking about how to assess your backyard. Are you providing all you can for the birds that you're attracting to your backyard? Then we'll be discussing some of the more challenging aspects of switching from traditional perennial gardening to native gardening. Also on today's show, hummingbirds, how to make hummingbird nectar, and a few tips to help hummingbirds that need rescuing. And finally, we'll be talking about suet. Is suet really safe for birds? Okay, do you have a good idea of what's going on in your backyard bird-wise? Put on your jacket, grab a notebook and a pen, and let's go outside. Now, the first thing you want to do when you get outside is make note of how many nests you have in your backyard from last year. So take a look around. We had a very hard winter with a lot of wind, so some of those nests may be on the ground, but you'll see them there, and you're going to want to count those as well. Once you get a count, it'll give you a pretty good idea of how well you're doing attracting birds to your yard, because you know what? It's not enough to just attract birds into your yard You also want them nesting in your yard for maximum enjoyment of bird watching. There's really nothing like being able to observe nests of baby birds growing from first hatched to nestling, finally to fledgling and learning how to fly for the first time. It's hours of bird watching enjoyment, and you don't want to miss that. So if you're not seeing a lot of nests in your yard, there are several reasons why. One of them may be you just don't have any native trees in your yard, or maybe you don't have enough native trees. Now, why is that important? Well, your average pair of parent birds will feed a nest of babies 9,000 caterpillars from the time they hatch from the egg to the time they fledge from the nest and take off on their own. That's a lot of caterpillars. So you may ask, what is the connection between native trees and native insects? Well, moths and butterflies use native trees for overwintering, for protection. They lay their eggs on the tree's leaves. And then when the larvae hatch, they eat the leaves as well. So native trees provide a lot of protection and a lot of nourishment for moths and butterflies. So it just stands to reason that native insects are not attracted to non-native trees. That's because native trees and native insects have co-evolved over thousands and thousands of years and have formed a compatible partnership. Now, the other thing to think about is, do you have cats in your yard? Maybe your neighbor across the street has cats that they allow to go outdoors. I can bet you almost 100% that if you have cats roaming through your yard, you're not going to have many nests because 
Birds don't like predators. It's just too dangerous. The other question to ask is, is there a lack of cover? Birds are afraid of predators. They're always checking in their peripheral vision for predators. So they need lots of cover. So not just native trees, but native shrubs and native perennials provide the cover that they need. So that's another issue to look at. Do you have enough protective cover in your yard? Just a few trees are not going to cut it. When you're assessing your yard, you're also going to want to check any of your nesting boxes. So here's what I do usually. I take a small step ladder and I very carefully open the side of the nesting box because you want to make sure that because it is springtime, that a new pair of parent birds haven't already started to build a nest in the nesting box. It would be awful to pull what you think is an old nest from last year out only to discover that it's actually a new nest with eggs in it. So you want to be very careful. What I do is I observe the nest for a while to see if there are parent birds coming in and out. If I do not see that, then I take the stepladder over, I open the nest box, and I very carefully pull out the nest that's in there and check to make sure there, there are no eggs in there. If it's an old ratty nest from last year, I remove it. And here's the reason why. Old nests usually contain feather mites. Now, feather mites aren't going to bother us. So there's no need to worry if you go to pull out a nest and you find there are feather mites. They may jump on your face and your hands momentarily, but then they will jump off because there's only one thing they're interested in, and that is feathers. So adult birds, feather mites are a problem, but they're able to preen. They can preen the mites off. However, feather mites can be a real hazard for newly hatched birds. They don't know how to preen at that point. They're not able to remove the feather mites themselves. So what happens is the feather mites burrow into the skin. They can cause infection and they can also cause anemia because they are blood-sucking parasites and it can eventually kill the baby bird. So you're going to want to pull all those old nests out and leave a nice clean nesting box for the newly arriving pair of parent birds for the new season. Okay, so those are just a few things to think about when you're assessing your backyard. Some other great things to have are, do you have a pond or stream nearby for water? Birds are not going to nest unless there is a water site fairly close. And if you do not have a pond or stream nearby, there's always the option of putting out a water feature, like building a pond yourself or putting out a bird bath with fresh, clean water in it. And that will help attract the birds to your yard so they actually do decide to nest. So like I said, just a few issues to think about. Now, what you're going to want to do is keep your notes from year to year so you can compare your bird count. And a way to remedy a low number of nests is, as we just said, try planting native trees, putting up more nest boxes, and planting native shrubs for protective cover. Now, native trees, what are the best native trees to plant for birds? Well, I highly recommend native oak trees. They provide food and protection for 500 species of caterpillars. Then also native willows and native cherry trees. Both of those trees provide protection and food for hundreds of species of caterpillar. So start with those three and build from there. Now, a great treat for your kids would be to set up a, a dry erase board in the kitchen and hang it on the wall and let the kids write down all of the wildlife they see in the backyard. That includes birds, mammals, turtles, butterflies, dragonflies, 
you'll have quite a long list by the time summer is over and your kids will have learned a lot. Now, since we are talking about caterpillars and butterfly larvae here, I thought I would mention that it doesn't hurt to add a few annuals to your yard to help the larva develop into butterflies and moths. Clover, dill, fennel, and parsley. You know, as soon as it's safe to start planting these annuals in your region, I would plant them in different places in your yard, you know, with a good source of sun, and you will help the uh, butterflies and moths immensely. And by doing that, you'll be helping the birds. Okay, so let's talk just a minute about what so many of us are trying to do. For years, most of us as gardeners have spent decades growing perennials, usually traditional perennials like cultivars, non-natives, and ornamentals, with maybe a few natives thrown in. But now we want to help Mother Nature. We want to help wildlife by planting natives. This transition can be a little challenging, and here's why. We have to talk about instant gratification here for just a second. You need cash, you drive to a bank, drive up to the ATM, and bingo, you've got your money. You're hungry, you drive up to a restaurant, go up to their drive-thru, and within minutes you've got hot food that's ready to eat. Well, the flower nursery has been doing the same thing for years. They've set us up for instant gratification. When we drive into that flower nursery, what's the first thing we see? We see tables filled with brightly colored flowers that you just pop in the ground, water every couple days, and you've got these huge blooms in bright colors, no muss, no fuss, no waiting, instant gratification. Now, instant gratification has been a major moneymaker for the $60 billion a year U.S. horticultural industry. They know what they're doing. I mean, let's be real here. Doesn't that riot of color, those hot pinks, carmine reds, and cheerful yellows that you see when you park your car at the nursery center, don't they make you happy? And doesn't the thought that you can just dig a hole and put them in the ground and they give you season-long color, doesn't that make you happy too? I'm going to be honest here and say, yeah, it's easy. That's not the way it works with native plants. And that's why there's some amount of disappointment among traditional perennial gardeners or is trying to switch over to native gardening. It's just different. There's that old saying, sleep, creep, leap. What they mean is you plant native plants, and the first year they sleep, so you don't see much growth. The second year they creep, you see a little bit of green coming up the, into the soil. And then finally, the third year, leap. You finally start to see the plant emerging from the ground and growing into a plant. So it takes a lot of patience. Some, I'm going to say, you know, some native plants take five years before you start to see growth. But what's happening is, and we can't see this because we can't see under the ground, native plants are growing an extensive root system under the ground. So that's what takes up the first two to three years of their growing. Then, you know, year three, four, five, you start to see the plants growing and blooming. So that is not instant gratification. It's prolonged gratification. It's a whole different way of thinking about gardening. And it really trips some people up. I know it tripped me up. So please don't lose heart. Because you know what happens when a gardener loses heart? You go out with a spade and you dig everything up and you go and plant perennials and annuals in that spot, you know, which is not what you want to do. It's not failure. It's just different. 
and it requires waiting and it requires patience. So I would say if you're starting native gardening, don't be hard on yourself. You know, if you're a gardener, you're probably a multitasking overachiever, just like I am. You know, we like success and you will have that success if you're willing to wait. So anyway, we'll talk about this more as time goes on because it's, it's challenging. But one of the tips I would recommend is start with the easy growing natives. And if you want to find out more information about what's easy to grow native wise, go to wildseedproject.org. They have a great set of information on their website. It's very educational. It certainly helped me and it will help you get to success faster than you normally would by just sort of winging it. Okay. And now let's talk about the pileated woodpecker. Did you recognize that call at the beginning of the show? That's the pileated woodpecker's call. We call the pileated woodpecker the feathered engineer of the forest. And here's why. I see a great many orphaned pileated woodpeckers come into my wild bird center every year. Pileateds are cavity nesters. So when trees are cut down by loggers, the youngsters inside the nests are often killed. The ones that do survive are brought to my center for treatment and we raise them until they reach juvenile status, at which point we release them back into the wild. The pileated with its 28-inch wingspan is considered the second largest woodpecker in the continental United States and is very close in size to an adult crow. The bird is second in size only to the ivory-billed woodpecker, a bird considered long extinct despite the occasional claim their calls being heard deep in the Louisiana swamps. The pileated is a shy and reclusive bird and prefers deep woodlands, especially mature mixed coniferous and deciduous forests. However, due to the extreme habitat loss taking place in the United States, they're being forced more and more into suburban areas, and as a result, sightings of the bird by the public have risen in recent years. Now you may ask, why is that woodpecker pecking on my house? The pileated prefers dead trees. Most people are not aware that dead trees are loaded with yummy, juicy insects, far more than any live tree. The pileated's diet consists of 90% insects, and their favorite food is termites and carpenter ants, along with wood-boring beetles, cockroaches, grasshoppers, caterpillars, and insect larvae. Their long, sticky, multi-pronged tongue can reach deep inside holes in the trees to capture larvae. When retracted, the tongue wraps around the inside of the head between the skull and the skin. The remaining 10% of their diet consists of fruit from natives like sumacs and dogwoods, as well as nuts. So don't be too fastidious a gardener. Leave dead trees and fallen logs on your property whenever possible. Some homeowners remove every dead tree in their yard only to find the pileated has gravitated to the other dead trees on the property, the ones used to build their house. If you don't want woodpeckers drilling the wood on your house, then leave as many dead trees up as possible, provided they're in a safe area, of course. Pileatas are a keystone species in the forest, as their nest cavities provide shelter for other wildlife, including bats, swifts, bluebirds, wood ducks, great crested flycatchers, and several other woodpecker species. Their specialized engineering work is also vital to the nutrient cycle of the forest, since their drilling helps to quickly break down dead and decaying trees, leading to regeneration of the soil. Pileatus have a sweet tooth, as they enjoy drinking the sap of pine trees. The sap contains mostly water, but also sugar and minerals that give the bird the extra energy it needs to get through the day. 
much in the way a hummingbird will drink at a nectar feeder. In turn, after a pileated has drilled for sap at a pine tree, the sap that is released will go on to feed numerous other birds and wildlife. Pileatas also have a fondness for pine resin, which is most likely due to its potent antibiotic properties. The sound of the pileatus drilling can sometimes be heard for miles and is often territorial, warning other male pileatus to stay clear of their breeding grounds. The woodpecker's skull is reinforced with spongy bone that can absorb the force of a hammering beak without resulting in headaches or brain damage. However, pileatus are just as prone to head injuries from window strikes as any other species of bird. It's important to keep bird feeders at least 50 feet away from all windows and sliding glass doors to avoid injuries to birds. The pileated has zygodactyl feet, meaning it has two toes located at the front of the foot and two toes located at the back. This gives them the excellent grip they need to climb vertically up and down trees. Apileated typically live for 20 to 30 years, but due to increasing habitat loss, their lifespan has been greatly reduced. And now on to the next question. Is suet really safe for birds? In 1898, Florence Merriam Bailey, a graduate of Smith College, discovered that nailing bone and blocks of suet to a tree attracted a wide array of songbirds. However, this was long before the day of genetically modified foods. Today, over 85% of the corn and soybeans grown in the United States are genetically modified. These grains are used in feedlots to feed cattle and are sometimes used in the blocks of packaged suet sold in supermarkets and feed stores. Now, suet is easily digestible and a source of quick energy for birds, especially during freezing cold temperatures. But organic suet would be preferable, and it is available. Go to birdstoneatcows.com for more information. And while we're on the subject of suet, you're going to want to keep in mind that suet is great to feed birds in cold and cool temperatures. However, suet can turn rancid in warm temperatures and can also grow mold, both of which are poisonous to birds. If you are enjoying this show and love what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. And now on to hummingbirds. There's always a big debate about how to make nectar for hummingbirds, but here's all you need to do. Stay away from store-bought nectar. Many of those brands are full of toxins and can be very poisonous to hummingbirds, especially the red dye that is put into some of the formulations that you see. The ratio is always four to one. That is four cups of water to one cup granulated sugar. Now, if you have tap water that has chlorine or fluoride in it, you're going to want to get bottled spring water somewhere and use that. I would really avoid chlorine and fluoride. So it's four cups of water to one cup granulated sugar. And the sugar is just your regular old Domino's white granulated table sugar. You don't want to use honey or brown sugar. That can be toxic for the hummingbirds. Add the four cups of water to the one cup of granulated sugar. Bring to a boil on the stove. 
and stir with a spoon until the sugar is completely dissolved. Let it boil for one minute to kill bacteria, then take it off the stove and allow it to cool. You always want to make sure that it's room temperature before putting into a hummingbird feeder and feeding to hummingbirds. So my recommendation is that you hang two or three feeders in your yard as the male hummingbirds can be very territorial and you don't want to start World War III. You want to make sure your feeders are clean. You want to make sure that in hot weather you are changing out and cleaning the feeder, if not every day, at least every two days or you're going to start to see black mold growing, and black mold is very toxic to hummingbirds. I've seen it grow in as little as 24 hours. And I'm also not a big fan of refrigerating any nectar that you've made yourself, and here's why. There's a very thin, transparent mold that can grow over the top of refrigerated nectar that's hard to see, and you do not want to be feeding the hummingbirds any type of mold. So I always make exactly what I need for that particular day. I always make it fresh. That's really the safest way to ensure the hummingbirds aren't getting something that is not going to be helpful. And now on to the next question. Just a word about salamanders. It's springtime, and with those warmer, rainy nights, you're going to see salamanders and frogs attempting to cross the roads at night to get to their vernal pools. So many people, unfortunately, just plow through with their cars, and hundreds of thousands are killed every year. There are many salamander rescue brigades forming. These volunteers gather in parties of five to ten people and spend their evenings scooping up hundreds of salamanders and frogs and getting them safely to the other side of the road. Our vernal pool habitats are fragile enough without this yearly massacre. Check with your local town offices or conservation commission to see if there is a group nearby that you can join. And as always, be safe. Wear a headlamp and reflective gear and work with a lookout who can tell you when cars are approaching. Now, hummingbird nests are remarkably small. They are the diameter of a walnut shell, believe it or not. That's really tiny. So you might want to hold off on trimming branches or cutting down trees until the nesting season is over, just to be safe. Their nests often look like they're colored white, but that's because they take spider webs and cushion the inside of their nest, believe it or not, so that there's a nice soft environment for the nestlings. Now, what are some problems that hummingbirds can get into? I get so many calls every year from people saying that there's a hummingbird trapped on their screen porch. What usually happens is if the door is left open and there are flowers inside the porch that are red or pink, that hummingbird's going to be attracted to those plants. And then once the door is closed, they'll be trapped. The best thing you can do is open that door, put something heavy to keep the door from swinging closed due to the wind, and leave that area. The hummingbird will fly out on his own eventually. But if, as long as there's no commotion, as long as there are no people around making noise and watching, otherwise they'll be too frightened to move. The other place they get caught in a lot are garages. Now, why is that? Well, on most automatic garage door openers, there's an emergency lever. That lever is usually covered in bright red plastic. And it's done so that if there's a problem, you'll see that red and be able to grab that handle and stop the door from coming down when, you know, in case your car is under there. However, it attracts hummingbirds. The hummingbirds see the red handle. They think there are flowers. Next thing you know, they're inside the garage and they're trapped. So the best thing to do is to open that garage door. Now, 
you can remove that red handle, but there's a good chance you'll be nulling and voiding your warranty for your garage door opener. What you can do is take paper towels or a towel, cloth towel, and cover that handle, cover the red color, and leave it open until the hummingbird flies out. So there you have it. There's two ways to help rescue hummingbirds. So how did I land here? My goodness. Well, as the opening mentioned, I was a college professor for years. Then I got married. We relocated to a new state and bought a house, and that first winter in New England changed my life. I was driving home from the supermarket, and the road led through a marshy area with water. It was freezing cold that day, and there was snow piled up everywhere. I happened to glance down as I drove over a small bridge that spanned, well, I wouldn't even call it a stream. It was more of an inlet of water. And when I glanced down, I saw this gorgeous swan. But there was something wrong with it. It was beached. It was sitting on the sand along the edge of the water, and it had its head tucked under one of its wings. I slowed down the car, and then I started to speed up because I decided at that point I wanted to get home as fast as I could. I wanted to get home so I could call the local organization I'd heard of that rescued wildlife. I got home and I called the man and told him about the swan, and he said, well, a mute swan is not native, so we don't rehabilitate that species. And then he hung up. Uh, I was flabbergasted. I mean, there was an animal, obviously suffering. It was freezing cold outside, and the animal needed help. I got really upset at that point, and my husband knows that look I get on my face. He said, what are you doing? I was running back and forth, putting blankets and towels inside the car. I was going to figure out a way to get that swan inside our house so I could warm the bird up. I wasn't sure what swans ate, but I knew I had some lettuce in our refrigerator. I ran into the bathroom and cleared away all the shampoo, soap, rubber duckies, and anything else that was sitting along the rim of the bathtub. It looked big enough to hold them, and I started pouring water into the tub just a few inches so the swan would feel comfortable and could maybe take a drink. Then I jumped back in the car and sped off. The thoughts that ran through my mind as I drove back to the marsh were things like, how can people be so cruel? There has to be a way to help all animals. Why does the world have to be this way? I finally made it back to the marsh and parked my car. I saw the birds still sitting in the same exact spot, and the hill was somewhat steep, so I carefully climbed down to the edge of the water. The swan was big. It was a lot bigger than I realized. Of course, I had heard all these horror stories about swans being mean and attacking people. So I slowly knelt down next to the bird, trying to figure out how to pick him up and get him into my car. I touched his beautiful, soft, white, downy feathers. They were so silky and so smooth, but he didn't move. That's when I knew he was really sick. I leaned over and put both arms around his body and tried to lift him up from the ground. And that's when I realized it was dead weight. He was dead. He was gone. And his body was frozen to the ground. I knelt there crying for a long time. I had to leave him there. I had no choice. In that long, slow drive back to my house, something in me changed. My eyes had been permanently open to the suffering of animals and also to the indifference and cruelty of humans. And I realized I was part of that cruelty because I had been indifferent to the plight of wildlife, native or non-native, all of my life. It was such a horrendous feeling to think I had been complicit in cruelty due to my own ignorance. But once you're awakened like I was that day, there really is no turning back. I knew in my heart I was inextricably linked to the natural world. And in that moment, I became very protective of that world. 
my inner Sheena had been unleashed. Join Americans everywhere in the One Third for the Birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of birdwatching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. That's it for today's episode, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in to Bird Hugger. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everybody, and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.